Welcome back. This is Dr. Jim Schrader, and we have reached our 41st podcast of Living a Whole Christian Life. And it's great to be back with you once again as we continue our focus on the social dimension of our Christian being. In the previous podcast, we talked about kind of what we consider ineffective and effective patterns of communication as God ordains them, the way that communication either works in the world or doesn't work in the world based on how God created us. But today we're going to focus on the role of the self as it relates to the social dimension, again, the social rooms of our Christian home. And in order to do this, I need to kind of start off by defining a few key terms and ideas. So when we think about the role of the self in our lives, we're going to talk about two things right off the bat, which is that our actual self and our ideal self. So our actual self is who we are really in in current time and space, right? It's all our imperfections. It's all the ways in which things go well and don't go well. It's, you know, it's a dynamic, ever-changing aspect of our being, but our actual self is, whether or not we like it or not, it's really who we are. And we kind of contrast that with our ideal self. Our ideal self is who we aspire to be, who we really want to be or feel that God has created us to be. And depending on who you are and depending on where you're at in your life, for some people, you may feel like that your actual self is really closely aligned to your ideal self. But I think for a lot of us, we would really say that who we are right now is probably pretty far away in in different times, I guess, in space from our ideal self. And so as we think about this idea here as it relates to the social dimension, I'm going to get into two different phenomenon as it relates to how others support our ideal self in our lives or don't support this. And the first thing is what we call the Pygmalion phenomenon. So it's an interesting name, but the Pygmalion phenomenon is basically when your spouse or significant other in certain ways demands or determines what they think your ideal self should be. Or, or even, you know, where it should go. And in different ways, they're really trying to kind of control how that self is developed, right? No matter what you kind of want or what you desire, they may have other ideas for you. And over time, and this was something that my wife and I certainly talked about, I think it was very important early in our marriage to kind of see how this comes, can sometimes play out in our interactions and just our, our behaviors in general. But the Pygmalion phenomenon basically kind of says, well, I think I know who you should be or who I want you to be, and I'm going to keep pushing you um, in different ways to go in that direction. We contrast that with what's called the Michelangelo phenomenon. The Michelangelo phenomenon is this idea that I want to support your ideal self, not what I think your ideal self should be, right? And so the Michelangelo phenomenon, basically the focus there is to really get and understand what your significant other or spouse, you know, desires to be and and the calls they desire to have. And you can repeatedly work to support that ideal self in them through different things, you know, through habits and, and through things that you're open to. And what we find is that, you know, every relationship, probably there, it's not either or, right? At times you really exert what you think they should be. And at times you probably exert what you think they desire to be. But the more that we tend to gravitate towards the Pygmalion phenomenon, the sense of kind of exerting our control over our significant other, and the less we really aspire to help them achieve their ideal self, the worse relationships tend to be. The more conflictual, the more that bitterness arises, the more inequitable relationships tend to be overall. And I think this, again, this was something that early in our marriage and even continuing 
that Amy and I have talked about, because there's certainly times where we all have our own drives and desires, or we all have our own conceptions of what it means to be successful and doing what we should be in life. And there's a real tendency in human beings to basically exert kind of our values and our beliefs onto another person. And I'm not really speaking here so much as in raising children, because we certainly share our values and beliefs. There's many aspects that we do have to regulate our children's behavior. But even there, as they get older, the question is, as we're guiding our kids, and I even think of our adolescents right now, as they're getting older, am I trying to exert who I think they should be and controlling that? Or am I trying to still teach you know good values and good beliefs as it corresponds to our Christian faith? But am I supporting their call, right? Their sense of where they should be. And so this, this idea of, again, the Michelangelo versus Pygmalion phenomenon is really, really important to understand because so much of what it creates here, positively or negatively, has to do with how healthy the relationship is. And there was an interesting article years ago. It was actually a review article, but a really kind of important work that came out in the world of psychology. And the author was Roger Welsh, and the title was Lifestyle and Mental Health. And in one aspect of this article, he really talked about the sense of interpersonal rapport and really this idea of what happens in a good way if couples really work to influence each other, but in ways that support the other's ideal self. And he, quote, said, it's so powerful is this interpersonal rapport that couples can mold one another both psychologically and physically. They may even come to look more alike as resonant emotions sculpt their facial muscles into similar patterns. Now, that's kind of an incredible thought to think that, you know, if what he's saying is true, that through positive influence, that we can actually even come to look more like each other facially in very mysterious ways, if the social dimension in some ways honors, I think, God's design there. But here's the question. We have to be real about this because There are clear reasons why we are often afraid to support another's ideal self, right? In in theory, this kind of makes sense. But in reality, there's actually a lot of fear. And I think that we've all had this, and I've certainly had it myself. And so I I would argue that there's really three main reasons why we're afraid, again, to support another's ideal self. The first is we're very uncertain and very kind of nervous at times about where this might take that person. And even if it might take them away from us, right? Let's think about a situation where someone has a particular skill, whether it's singing, whether it's athletics or whatever, and we really support them because, you know, we ultimately recognize that that seems to be a big aspect of their ideal self that they want to share with the world. If we support them in that way and they continue to get better and better and other people notice it, right? And they're applauded for this and they become even more famous or or well-known. I think that if anyone's really honest about that, that that significant other who's supporting this individual may have fear that they might even leave you or I. We just don't know. It's not always about that idea, but it's we're afraid of what supporting another's ideal self might lead to. I think that's one reason we're you know, reluctant. Number two, I think that we're afraid that more is going to be asked of us, right? I mean, imagine for a, a moment that, and some of you may have been called to politics or you're actually living with someone who is called the political world. Imagine you start to support that aspect of their ideal self, but then you recognize that the more they get in the political world, the more you're going to be asked to maybe speak in public, or you're going to be in the middle of controversies that you're not sure you want to be in the middle of. 
many times we're afraid of supporting the ideal stuff of others because we're afraid it's going to make us grow or do things that we're not really ready to do. And so that's a big key that I think often stops us from this. And the third is that maybe there's our ideal self that we come to know, aspects of it or it in its entirety is just something that doesn't jive well with us. We're just not comfortable with it. It may not even be that it's negative. It's just that it doesn't kind of line up with our experiences and our underlying tendencies. And so I think that it's important whenever you're in a relationship to be honest about this, to be honest. And, you and you know, we've talked a lot about communication at this point, but if you don't communicate effectively around these concerns, then the other person may just get the sense that you just don't want to support them in general. When in reality, you might have the desire, and we hope we have the desire to support one another, but we don't know what's going on unless we're just open and honest about that. And the last thing we want to think is that we're not, you know, the other person is not being supported when in fact we have that desire, but it's fear getting in the way. So in saying all this and this idea of the Michelangelo phenomenon and supporting another's ideal self, I do want to be clear. There are a couple of things this does not mean at all. The first is that it doesn't mean that in supporting another person, we are just going to be fine with whatever they do, especially when it goes against what's healthy, what's prudent, what is, in fact, even like certainly aligns with our Christian beliefs, right? So if we find that in supporting them, there are concerns that we have that aren't, you know, again, lining with living a whole Christian life. As Father Tony Ernst once said in a a great homily, he said, you know, the idea of fraternal correction, it's not about correcting someone. It's about having their best interests at heart. And so at times, if you feel like someone's going awry in what they're doing, Well, we need to really honor that and we need to let them know. But the key here is how we do this, right? Is our correction in the spirit of empathy and unconditional positive regard and love for the other person? Or is it in the spirit of proving ourselves right or elevating ourselves? And I think that's, that is, you know, really, really important because if people feel that you are correcting them because you like to be right and you like to show yourself kind of an, an upper hand, They aren't going to trust you no matter how close they are to you. But if people really feel like you have their best interests at heart, then they are more willing to accept corrections or more willing to accept feedback that's even critical in nature if they sense this. And it's interesting, years ago, I was in church and we were getting ready to leave after mass and I started to talk to someone that was kind of an acquaintance there, an older gentleman in church, and he started talking about his brother and him being estranged. And it was really a sad situation just to kind of listen that I think it had been over a decade that he and his brother really had very little relationship. But unfortunately, through this process, what they had, the, the little relationship that they actually did have was constantly centered on trying to prove the other person wrong. It was trying to like show how their beliefs were, you know, more correct, uh, more prudent, um, more equitable with the Catholic faith than the other. And then as I was talking to him more and more, I just got the sense that it wasn't so much at all about fraternal correction in the spirit of our Christian ideals. It was just more about, you know, showing who's best and who knows the most. And that is not the way that we want to go about this, because that gives you the sense that it's really not about supporting another's ideal self. It's about more about supporting myself, right, and making me feel good. The second key here when it comes to supporting another's ideal self, it does does not mean that it's being okay with incongruent 
in equitable situations. And I want to kind of use something that I think some trends over the course of just history that we've seen. And one of the things I go back even to my grandparents and, and I love them dearly and so many great things from my grandfather that I learned growing up. But like many men in the 60s or 50s or 60s or even 70s or so on, my grandfather came home, even though both my grandmother and grandfather had difficult days, very stressful days, he was in line with a lot of men of that era who basically walked in the door and said, where's dinner? And I'm done working for the night. Meanwhile, my grandma, who had worked again really hard and, and had her own stress, was left for the rest of the night to take care of pretty much everything in the home, whether it's a related dinner or the kids or cleanup or whatever. And my grandfather was left to kind of do what he wanted. And as I look at that situation, I look back, I certainly understand why many women of that era over time and then women of the, the next generation said, hey, wait a second, like, are we really supporting another's ideal self? Are we, are we more creating a situation of inequitability? It's interesting to think about that and, and how that gives rise to different movements. But in that situation, it wasn't about having different roles. That's perfectly often what you know, occurs in our relationships. It was about creating, again, a situation of incongruence. And if we fast forward even today, in some ways, I, I think that the pendulum may have swung in a different way. Of course, not in every household. But when I think of the day today and I think of the idea of a wife having a honey-do list for a husband, there's something about that that just doesn't feel right. And it's, it really doesn't seem to line with really that idea of the golden rule. Because the idea of a honey-do list is you're going to do all these things for me or for our house. But I, in turn, unless everybody in the house has a honey-do list, will kind of do what I decide it needs to be done. And so in that situation, again, you ask yourself, is this really about supporting the ideal self and supporting the marriage in general? Or is this a creating a situation where it's almost as if one spouse or significant other holds the upper hand in regards to how the day is orchestrated? So I don't know how you feel about that, but just kind of a couple of examples to think about here to clarify the sense that supporting the ideal self is not supporting the things that are unhealthy and imprudent and inconsistent with our beliefs. It's also not supporting situations that are just inequitable in nature and unfairly place a huge burden on one individual over the other. But what it is and always is, is about supporting our whole Christian being. And you know what's interesting as we think about this idea is that very often we as human beings have this really strong tendency to stubbornly pursue others in search of our goals, right? Let's be very honest. I mean, we all do this. Like if we have things that we want or we think that we need from someone else, it's very hard not to often pursue them over and over and over, whether it's in what we say, whether it's just the way things are set up. And over time, the problem with this is, is that more we pursue and try to control others, and especially our significant others, there's actually this relationship called, again, the pursuer-distancer relationship, which is that the more we try to pursue someone in that way and control them, the more they actually tend to distance themselves. So what happens here is that the opposite occurs that we really desire, right? We desire to have great influence over our partners. But in essence, in this situation, when it occurs in an unhealthy way, our influence actually is reduced. And after a while, it might be completely eliminated. And that, that is really certainly a state that 
God never intended these relationships that we have that, you know, we go all the way back to the beginning getting here and the sense of, you know, I mentioned this, I think a number of podcasts ago, but one of the best compliments I think that you could ever give a person in a relationship is that they help the other person flourish, right? But in a situation where the pursuer distancer relationship plays out in an unhealthy way, it's as if that relationship gets further and further apart and the influence is kind of rendered uh, null and void. So as we come to the end of the podcast today, in everything that we do, I think we have to consider, do our relationships with each other mirror our relationships with God? You know, it's interesting to think that God doesn't control us on any level, right? God gives us many different opportunities. God lays out our Christian faith and all the tenets and all the reasons and everything else. But in the end of the day, God gives that control back to the person and says, I so desire for you to come to me and I so desire for you to be close to me. But I know that if I try to control you, I mean, this is what I feel like God is saying. If I try to control you in this relationship, that your true ability to choose me is reduced or even eliminated. And so what I want the most is that you freely come to me, just like we say in our marriage vows, you know, the question is asked, do you freely come to this marriage, right? And God asked that same question, do you freely come to me and really want to be with me? And so in our relationships, as we're striving for the ideal self and others, we really should strive to support them in being whole. And that in doing that, we should trust that in holiness through wholeness, that they will come back to us ever more open and ever more loving than before. Hope you guys all have a great week. This is Jim Schrader. Be holy, be whole.